The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. All right. Right to the point. Like that. Everybody good? Doing well? I uh, did a wedding last night, and some of the wedding people are here, right? A few of you? Okay, good. All right. It was fun. It was beautiful. On the beach. Not a bad place to work. Okay. Um... Okay, so I set out to write a sermon on chapter 4, verse 1 through 22. I, I started writing on 1 through 4, and I just kept writing and writing and writing. And I didn't get any farther, because all kinds of stuff started stirring up, and it got, like, really serious. It was, so uh, this is going to be less of a teaching, more of a sermon, all right? Um, I'm more of a teacher than I am a I don't want to say preacher because it's kind of the same thing, a sermonizer or something like that. Um, but um, today, I, I kind of want to paint some pictures for us about how like, some things work in the church at large um, and local. And, and, and I want to talk about um, sort of some of, the, some of the things that we see, some of the um, pictures of corruption we see of the temple in the first century are very much pictures of what we see today. So um, do me a favor, hear me out today. Uh, and just ponder it. And uh, if you get mad, just surf your phone. Whatever, it's fine. Um, and, uh, but I, I, there's, there's a lot of things um, that I feel um, that we can pull out of what we see happening in the temple. And we compare it with the church today. And so um, uh, why don't we stop and pray and ask for the presence of God here um, uh, and then we'll get started, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, I ask that you would be here, that you would speak through me, that, um, that we would be very present, that we would have our eyes and our ears um, opened, that we would, we would receive whatever it is that you have for us, that we would um, not inspect necessarily the lives of others when receiving things, but inspect the lives of ourselves and that we would change. I pray that we would, because of these gatherings, that we would become more Christ-like, more fashioned and formed in the image of Christ, and that we would be um, a people whose words are the words of Christ, whose presence is the presence of Christ, whose um, actions are the actions of Christ. The way we look at people, that, that we would look through the eyes of Christ. And that this would begin to bring the healing that is necessary in our community and in our world. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so you have, um, you have Peter and John, and they're going to the temple. They're passing through Solomon's porch here. Um, this is pretty much what it would have looked like. Um, and when we find them here, they have healed a man, um, a beggar outside a handicapped a man who could not walk and who is, his entire life has been spent at the eastern gate, the beautiful gate, um, right on the other side of this colonnade. And he has been begging. His friends would bring him every day and he would beg for money so that he could continue to live. And everyone knew who he was. Everyone who passes through the colonnade every single day, three times a day, all the Jewish men and women to, to worship 
uh, and to offer their sacrifices, they all would have known this guy, and they did. And so he is healed by Peter and John, and when we find him in chapter 4, Peter is delivering a sermon and teaching a people who are gathering because they see this man, this beggar, standing and holding on. The passage says he was holding on to Peter and John, holding on to them, like he's not letting them go. Um, Probably partially because he's never really walked before, and so he's a little shaky, but also because his entire existence just changed. And he wants them to stay. He wants whatever this is. And so Peter has launched into a sermon. We talked about it last week. And while he's delivering the sermon, people begin to realize this beggar has been healed and he's there. And and they begin to gather around because they're shocked at what they're seeing. Now, I guarantee you, up and down the colonnade and around all the way around, the colonnade goes four different ways, um, that there were other people delivering sermons. This is kind of how it worked. Rhetoric was a huge deal back then. But they are gathering the biggest crowd. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so there's this interruption where the the leaders of the temple enter in and interrupt what is happening here. Uh, We have a list of them. We have the priests. We have the captain of the temple guard with the Sadducees. The priests and the captain of the temple guard are the ones who are sort of in charge of making sure, like the managers, right? They're making sure everything is running smoothly, checking the sacrifices, making sure that they're pure. Um, They're making sure no crippled people enter into the temple at all because they're considered unclean and not allowed in. That was a proclamation of King David 850 years earlier. That only what they would call fully formed people were allowed in. Anyone who was handicapped in any way would not be able to enter the temple. Yet here's this man, they all know, is a beggar and couldn't walk, and he's standing in the temple. And so they're inspecting this because I, he's, was, he's never been allowed to come in here before. Um, along with them is these, this group of men called the Sadducees. The Sadducees, a lot of people compare them with the Pharisees, but there are some key differences. They were leaders of the temple, but the Pharisees were a lot more actually Jewish. The Sadducees had mixed sort of the Jewish religion with, um, they had sort of partnered with the Roman Empire, the oppressors of the Jewish people, to order and run the temple. So they were really in charge, the the top tier in charge of the temple, and they were partners with the Roman Empire, with their own oppressors, and it was a very lucrative position for them to have. Um, They figured, um, if we really want to change the world, we're going to get in positions of power. We're going to partner with earthly governments and empires, and then we're going to pass laws and institute um, you know, measures that will make the world more godly. It's very much a position that much of the church has today. Um, and this is their position. And so, they, they come and they see John and Peter and this beggar standing and holding on to them. Um, and it says in verse 2, it says they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees were upset at what they were teaching and that this man had been healed and that, and that Peter's teaching at all because they know Peter. They know, we're going to find out in, in next week or so, that they recognize him as a follower of Jesus. Now, they're upset that he's teaching resurrection and the reason for that is because the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. The Sadducees, uh, different from the Pharisees, 
They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. That's all they believed. And we've talked about this before. They believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This was called the Pentateuch. Penta means five. It's the first five books. That's all they understood to be Scripture. And everything else they rejected. And in their view, the Pentateuch never mentioned resurrection. That only comes later. And so they rejected the very notion of resurrection. They believed when you die, you were just, you were just gone. And that's it. Buried and gone. Um, which means they had a lot of power over people's lives because if the people no longer believed in resurrection, then they realized they only had one life and they held on to that life with everything that they had. And so they could be easily manipulated and pushed around. But the people who believed in resurrection tended to cause a lot of problems. They tended to speak truth to power. They tended to go against the flow. The Pharisees regularly were causing riots because they weren't afraid of death because they believed in the resurrection of God's people. Okay? The, uh, the disciples, after seeing the risen Christ, became more bold than anyone in all of scriptures. And they, and, they, and they preached that resurrection because they saw Jesus die and they saw Jesus alive. And within three months, they're, tr- they're all spread out and traveling the world, proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. But the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. However, about three weeks earlier, Jesus was standing here. The not yet killed, buried, and resurrected Jesus is standing here with his disciples. He had also healed some people, and he was teaching. Um, And the Sadducees confront him, and they bring up a question about the resurrection, because this is what they do. This is their their thing. This is like their pet theology. There's no resurrection. So they come to Jesus, and they say, basically poking and prodding him, mocking him about ideas like the resurrection that Jesus believed and taught. And Jesus speaks back to them, um, and he does something that nobody else had ever done. It's in Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> he did something nobody in Jewish history had ever done, which was show that the Pentateuch teaches resurrection. He pulls a particular passage out of the book of Exodus. Um, and he says, about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he quotes the book of Exodus. I believe it's chapter 3. Um, that may not, this may not seem like much to you, but to them, the way they understood the Bible and the scriptures and the way that they flowed and the way that they read this and the way they understood this statement, it says it shocked them and it shocked everyone standing around because Jesus had just shown that resurrection was real in the Pentateuch, that it was always taught from the very beginning of scriptures. Um, And it says that these Pharisees were shocked and that everyone was shocked watching this happen because Jesus had just pulled the rug out from under their entire theological structure. Yet, they still refused to believe. Their entire argument was based on something Jesus proved wrong. And they still went forward, we find them three weeks later, still getting upset about people teaching the resurrection. The question is, why? Because it disrupts their system. Um, The Messiah, the idea that a Messiah had come had died and brought resurrection to the people. And that now people are being healed and made whole, different parts of their lives being saved and resurrected through him at his very speaking of his name. It's disruptive to their entire business model. I mean, wouldn't it be simply great news to know that the, king, the Messiah King had finally come, the temple was no longer necessary, and death was no longer a threat because Jesus had proven resurrection to be true. Therefore... 
We can all do the right thing without fear of death. There's no reason to offer sacrifices anymore. We don't need the temple anymore. Isn't that great news? And the Sadducees and the temple people who are all employed are like, no, it's just terrible news. Why? Because we're all losing our jobs. This is, all, this is all we've ever known. We have power over the people. We determine what happens here in this entire city. We are in charge. And so we will not change our mind. And so what happens is their theology flowed not from what was actually true, from what they wanted to be true and indeed needed to be true because it was very lucrative for them. They believed what they wanted to believe so that they could keep the hold on power and money and position and influence. Even when the truth was flashed right in front of them. Even when there's a resurrected person standing right here at the name of Jesus. Even though there's 500 people walking around saying, I I saw the guy that they killed, he was teaching me. I saw him. I went and saw him preach again. He's alive. He's very much alive. And yet... They're silencing them. Their entire theology flowed from the need to preserve and protect the system and the money and the power. And so this is kind of what I want to talk about a little bit today. Um, For many of us, our theology tends to flow from what we want to be true based upon how much it actually disrupts our lives, our personal lives. Um, Oftentimes it is advantageous to believe some things and not other things. You will find your spot in a community more easily if you believe the same things. You will find life is easier and it's easier to make money and it's easier to get to move up a ladder in some corporation or whatever or in a community if you have certain beliefs that align with with simply what they want you to believe. And so you hold on to those things and if it costs you to change your mind, you're far less likely to actually change your mind. People will present you with facts, and how often have you, at Thanksgiving dinner, stated a fact, and that person's like, nah, like we, okay, like we can prove it, but there's nothing you can do, because facts don't matter, disruption matters, that's what matters, and we do not want to be disrupted by anyone's theology, even Jesus, um, So we're much more likely to accept ideas and push back against other ideas depending on how they are received. And the questions we need to ask here, okay, sketch time. This is you, this is the Bible, okay? We have a relationship with the book. Every one of us does. Um, And there's really two options in building theology. Option one is to form your theology. Like, you form it, right? Right? Oftentimes, all these external things are coming into play and you're forming your theology. Or option two is you allow your theology to form you. And you change your life depending on what the Son of God has revealed to us in Christ. The very presence of God in the, in the world, in Jesus, who is the Word of God. He is the one that we should look at and align our lives with. But far Far more of us are are taking option one for many reasons. Um, I mean, what if the grace of God is actually incredibly costly? Sure. Sounds like free gifts, but what if if it actually costs you a lot to receive it, to respond? 
What if it's incredibly disruptive to your life? For the Sadducees, the coming of Christ into the lives of their community meant that their wealth, their position, and their influence all came to an end. And what if, just what if, for the kingdom of God to be fully present in your particular life, what if it means that you must lose everything that you have been working for your entire career and life? Would you still do it? Would you still receive it? Or would you receive a portion of it and fashion the rest of it to, to sort of fall in line with the shelves of your life that you have constructed? Um, that is what the Sadducees were up against. That is the decision that they had to make. And what we see in the scriptures is exactly what we see in our own world today. Institutional authority. Institutional authority. Um, is always concerned with deviant voices and movements that threaten it. They're always terrified of them. Always. Um, Institutional authority is always concerned with it. Those in elected or established positions of power, oftentimes when given the choice to do the right thing or to protect the system, will opt to protect the system instead of doing the right thing. Even if it's hurting people, because you will respond, well, I have people too that will be hurt if this comes to light. And so we're going to cover it. We're going to hide it. Um, and everyone who benefits from the system will likely choose to protect the system, even if they know it goes against everything that they believe. The temple itself was always intended to be a place of healing, a place of hope, a place where they reminded each other that resurrection was coming, that God's people should stay faithful, even in the face of great danger. The temple itself was the place where people are reconciled with God, people are made whole again, where people receive the hope that they need to stay faithful to God. And in this moment, it had become that. Jesus had died and was resurrected His followers are now restoring people in the name of Jesus. And it is obvious that it's actually happening, that this man is standing here completely healed, and the people are delivering the... Like, the people are listening to the teaching. And look what it says. It says, many who heard the message believed, and so the number of men uh, who believed grew grew to about 5,000 people in that that city. Now, uh, fun fact... When it says the number of men, it's literally only counting the men. These men were also, in a patriarchal culture, they're heads of households, and their entire households would have, would, have, would have converted as well. We're talking tens of thousands of people, a movement rapidly growing because the people recognize everything they have been taught. They were taught all kinds of stuff, and they hear it, and they're like, well, there it is. It's all happening, and they believe. Yet the people that run the temple, that were in charge of teaching all these things, enter, and they, they need it to stop because they're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose everything. They're going to lose their power. They're going to lose it all. So the temple was always created to be a place where people received healing and restoration, and yet it had now become so corrupt that resurrection itself was a dangerous idea, and this man being healed was offensive to them, and that the actual Messiah, the King of Israel that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years, now was anathema to them, completely rejected. And so they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. They're literally arresting people for doing things that the temple was supposed to do anyways. Um, 
So I want, I want to talk a little bit about, about structures, how this happens, how we can accidentally build something that is the opposite of what it was intended to be. Because it happens all the time. Um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees really get a bad rap. People look at it and say, look what they did to the temple. Yet, um, what they did was no different than oftentimes what modern Christians do. Not just many businesses and governments, but churches do this as well. Governments, we all know, were created to be for the benefit, sole benefit of the people, the citizens of that country. Yet every country everywhere looks at their government as mostly corrupt. Every government. Because we accidentally make evil things all the time for various reasons. That's kind of what I want to talk about. Um, so there's this thing called a, a, um, a superorganism. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, a superorganism is it's one thing that is made up and, and necessitated by, by lots and lots of little things. And so a good description of this is, is like a beehive, right? It's got a queen bee. It's got worker bees, several hundred of them. You need a certain amount of them for it to be sustained. Um, you, you have like sort of the honeycomb, like the place where they, the, the structure that they build and you have the honey and the stuff that they eat and um, you have the order. Uh, when all those things are present, we call it a beehive. If one of those things is missing, it's not a beehive. If there's no queen, you don't have a hive. If there's no worker bees, you don't have a hive. If there's no actual structure, you don't have a hive. Everything is present. We call it one thing even though these are all individual things. The church is the same thing. We are a superstructure. We're about six or 700 people, give or take holidays. Um, and when we come together, we are a church. We have pastor, we have elders, we have deacons, and we have, we have congregants, and we have lay staff, we have worship, we have teaching, we have scriptures, we have all the necessary pieces to build a church, and if just like one piece of the thing shows up, or even like two or three pieces, we don't, I mean, technically we have a theological church, but like we're not doing the function of the church. Like we all need each other, we all show up like, I need you, you need me, and we come together and we are a superstructure called the church, and we're all contributing, and the thing is about structures is as we're building them, sketch time again, as we're building structures, um, we're all coming together and we're building this thing with all of the pieces that we have and all the parts that we play and all the things that we do. And we're not just building the gathering. We're also building a culture. We're building um, a sort of a communal belief system. We're building an outlook on the world around us together collectively. And as we're building this, it is also now in return building us and fashioning us. And so the thing that we're building matters because the thing that we're building is building us at the same exact time. And everything that we're injecting into the culture of this place is also um, guiding our future decisions and how we will respond to various things in the world. Now, we live in a time when the abject failures of modern Christianity to build the body of Christ adequately uh, are obvious and apparent. Last year, I don't know if you pay attention to like, it's weird to say, but like Christian news, right? Like, like Christianity Today and stuff, and, and, and the amount of scandals in churches, the, um, the sheer amount of scandals and how big they are of places that, that became the opposite of what they were ever intended to be, and then nobody intended to build them into these things. Um, one, one particular Protestant denomination 
um, put out a report last year that says this. It says, uh, there are approximately 260 annual reports of children being sexually abused by ministers and other church workers in their denomination. Um, research shows that 60% of, of these abuse victims never tell anyone that they have been abused. Only 36% um, of rapes are reported. 30, 34% of attempted rapes are reported. And only 26% of assaults perpetuated against women in the church were reported. This is happening. The fact that it's happening is atrocious. The fact that it's not even being reported shows us that we're protecting our own systems rather than caring about and loving people in any particular Christ-like way. And their findings ends like this. It says, churches and leaders have been mostly concerned with protecting the reputation of their ministry and the church when abuse comes to light. Thus, they have failed to protect the survivors of sexual abuse themselves and failed to prevent future victims. And it will continue to happen over and over and over unless we build something else. And I'm not picking on the, the SBC, not picking on the Catholic Church. I think every major denomination under, under the surface has the exact same problem. I think probably the Christian Missionary Alliance, our denomination, probably on some level has the same problems. And I think we're at a time when we need to compare ourselves with what was happening in the day of the apostles and say, how are we any different? We have designed and built things that should not exist and that were never intended to be what they are. Because the fact is we create the culture that creates us. And if we, as a church, uh, are focused on our reputation and our image um, and how people view us and how upright and uh, how upright we are and how holy we are, or even how cool we are, if we care about this stuff at all, it actually takes our focus off of how we view others and how we care for those who have terrible view, a terrible reputation, who have been abused, who have are carrying lots and lots of, 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 of pain and baggage. And it will affect how we see them. Because while Jesus is gathering with broken and, and people and people of terrible reputation, everyone is mocking him for doing so. Who's mocking him? The religious leaders are doing that. Which is exactly what happens today when we care so much about our reputation. Um... The structure determines how we will respond in the face of evil. I am very tempted on regular occasion to avoid topics that upset people. And I know which ones they are because I've tested those waters. <laughs> um, and I've gone away deep and we've shrunk. Um, I, like, I, I know what those topics are. I know, very, I, 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 I know certain ideas threaten the American Christian way of life. Certain ideas do. Um, I know that very few churches ever scratch the surface of issues like non, the, the obvious nonviolence of Jesus. Obvious nonviolence of Jesus. And how unchristlike we are in that way. Um, uh, or historic, the historic influence of racism in the American church, which is why we're doing this reasoning series in February. Which if the title of it rubs you the wrong way, that's why you should come. That's why you should come. Um, or taking care of the environment, God's world, or the poor, or marginalized people, societal deviance. 
Jesus made a place for them in his fellowship at his table. They belonged in his presence. But we must always be aware that every structure is built one brick at a time. And what I mean is this. As tempted as I am not to talk about particular things, because we could grow this pretty fast, I think. But as tempted as I am not to talk about specific things, every time you don't take care of something that needs to be addressed or talked about, you are laying a brick of a structure that you probably don't want to build. And it is very easy to build a a church that is happy and encouraging and motivating and completely oppressive. It's possible. It happens all the time. And we have to try to avoid this at all costs. We have to look for the truth in all of it. We will always be tempted to avoid this or that teaching of Jesus. We will always be tempted to hide this or that misconduct in the church so that we can maintain power and reputation. We must always, always, if we're trying to be Christ-like, instead, pour ourselves out. Say, in this situation, the right thing to do is to pour ourselves out, our reputation, our money, whatever it takes to make this right, to fix this thing. We must be honest. We must confess. We must have a a Leviticus uh, 19 day of atonement where we all confess collectively the part that we played in, in the unhealthy thing that we built. We must. Because the body of Christ, I want you to imagine the actual physical body of Christ, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, walking around Palestine. What was he doing? What was Jesus doing? He was protecting the woman being stoned. He was, he was healing the Roman centurion's children, their oppressor. He is forgiving his enemies. He's welcoming everyone to the table and and telling them how loved they are by God and how forgiven they are by God. And if that is what Jesus was doing then, then the body of Christ today should also be doing the same thing. We should be willing to lay down our own existence as an organization so that others can be saved because the resurrection can only come about when the body of Christ first lays down its life. That is how resurrection happens. Nothing can be made whole again until the body of Christ lays down its life. It's the only way healing can happen. That's it. And I don't want to talk about this just on like a big structural level, like the church has a superorganism. I want to talk about you as well. You yourself are a type of superorganism. You are every day making choices and setting the tone and laying bricks of a structure that you are building that can be healthy or can absolutely destroy you. We are building every single day um, a structure that will in time control us as individuals. The choices that you made this morning are factors in what your life will look like next week, next year, next decade. You are building a structure that will control you. And I've had too many friends develop habits that started small and controllable. They built a structure that destroyed their lives, their marriage, their faith, all of it, because they didn't realize the, the, the weight of their actions in, in God's world. Um, I have friends who developed habits of pornography that ended up absolutely controlling them and ruining their future marriages 
a habit that they started when they were young and they were older, their brain was hardwired never to combine and put together um, physical, um, physical desires with intimate emotion and deeply knowing somebody. These two things were severed because of the constant onslaught of pornographic material growing up. And the brain needed the pixels and the detachment. And it controls you. And eventually, the thing that you built has such control of you that it always ends up and has ended up manifesting itself in some physical way by engaging physically in things that no Christian ever should. We are building every day with our decisions and our choices. We are laying bricks and building structures that are building us. This is why our spiritual disciplines are so important. This is why our daily time of asking for the presence of God to be with us, of of being thoughtful and contemplative in our understanding of the things of God and how we follow God. This is why it is so important for us to contemplate at every moment of the day, to put our lives in Christ, like we talked about last week. Our decisions are made by Christ. The places we go are, are decided and directed by Christ. The, the prayers that we pray are the prayers of Christ. The ways that we look at people are the ways that Christ looks at people. Otherwise, we will build what Paul calls a body of sin that will act upon us. In Romans chapter 6, he says it like this. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. The call of Christianity is to repent and be baptized. In other words, like, absolutely turn around. Stop living your life. Start living the life of Christ. Live for eternal things, eternal life. Making those decisions and building this structure. Repent and, and be baptized. Immersed, uh, immersed in the things of God. Um, putting away that old life in baptism and beginning a new one putting to death your old self and placing yourself in Christ, replacing all your old ways with acts of goodness. And Paul even talks about several times in the scriptures, he sort of repeats the words of the Psalms. They're like, you can't just stop things. You need to replace them with other things that you're building. So Paul even says, the thief must no longer steal, but he must be generous. So the thief becomes generous. The gossip becomes an encourager. The, the lustful porn addict becomes an advocate for women. Like, there are things that must be replaced because you are building something. What are you building? The, the cool church becomes the church with no identity but Christ, not liberal, not conservative, not even moderate, but Christ-like in every way. That is what the church should be. Because we don't fit in this world. We shouldn't and we don't. The call of the church is to be Christiform, formed every day by Christ. That word Christiform is going to be the word of this year that I'm going to use over and over and over because it's, we're going to work it even into our, like, our, our, our vision and mission statement. Like it, it's, we want to be a people who are Christ-like to each other and are constantly being formed by Christ. 
And when the world looks at us, they should get an accurate picture of what Jesus was actually like. That's what they should see. And so guys, your daily, your daily rituals are important. Your small victories, I had a success today. Those small victories, those are important. They really are. Um, your honest contribution to the health of this church is important. It really is. We're building this thing together. Your unchecked and secret sins, they matter far more than you ever would ponder that they do. You are building something that will end up building you in its own image. It cannot be held back. What you are building is building you. Our community servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, On this light, happy note, We'll talk about communion. Um, so in, a, in the lobby over here, we have like this resource wall. Um, if you're kind of like new to the faith or at least like new to Watermark, you're rebuilding your theology, maybe you've deconstructed and you're sort of coming back to God. I'm glad you're here. Um, if, if you sort of want to work on the path, you need some reading, you need some recommendations. We have a, um, in the lobby over to the right side over here, some reading recommendations for you. Uh, some books about spiritual discipline, some books about how to read the Bible, some books about um, how to follow Christ, some books about the church um, and how the church can go so wrong, some books about racial reconciliation. Uh, Jamar Tisby's book, who's coming in February, his book is out there. Um, look at those. Um, at some point, pick some up and read some of those. Begin the journey to building the structure of your faith. You have to. Um, as we go to communion, I want to invite everyone in the room. You don't have to be a member of our church. Um, uh, you don't have to fully understand even what's going on. I, I want you to come to the table. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the wine glass. It's the body of Christ broken for you. It's the blood of Christ poured out for you. It's for your salvation and for your healing, but more than that, it's also an invitation for you to follow Jesus in that way and allow yourselves to be formed by the cross, to be poured out. And so uh, our communion servers are here. Um, I'm gonna spend some time in, in, take some time in prayer. Um, If you need prayer, there'll be somebody in the prayer room right back here out the doors to the right to pray with you. Um, And uh, let's, let's do communion, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would continue to convict us, inform us, help us to throw off the, uh, the body of sin that is always trying to control us. When we look at people, let us begin to look through your eyes and see them as you see them. Let us understand how victory actually comes into the Christian life. It comes by loss, it comes by death, it comes by pouring out, and then we are filled up by you. So help us to be people led by your spirit, informed by your presence. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus if you would.